0: Within the nonprofit world, it's easy to move around. And I think this is possibly different than the corporate world. I mean, I have been a marketing director, a circulation director. I have been a managing editor. I have been a copy editor. I feel like I've done virtually all of it, and now a fundraiser. If you can demonstrate your value, you know, make meaningful contributions, there's room to move around, and there's certainly an immense room to grow. It's a good career choice, you know, if, especially if you like
1: variety. This is Professional Confessionals. We're joined today by Development Officer at the Modern Language Association, Susan Kenney. Thanks so much for joining us, Susan. Thanks, Lourdes. Let's dive right in. Please explain What a development officer does. Well, (laughs)
0: I am slowly learning what a development officer does. I have never been one before. My background is really in marketing with nonprofits. And a development officer's role is chiefly fundraising for a nonprofit. I have done some fundraising in the past, but never as a full-time position. So I am literally learning on the fly. The Modern Language Association is a pretty large organization. It has 25,000 members in the United States and internationally. They are a membership organization for scholars and academics in the humanities, foreign languages, English literature, writing, cultural studies, anthropology, philosophy, women's studies, and I am it in terms of fundraising. I am their sole fundraiser. Most of their money is earned, which is interesting for a nonprofit. They basically catalog all scholarly research at the humanities, and they sell it to places, place of huge distributors like EBSCO. And that's how they mo- make most of their money. And second to that is membership, because members pay to belong. So the fundraising portion is really quite a small portion of their income but it allows them to do programming that they wouldn't normally be able to do. So it's very important to them. We do a lot of advocacy work, my work funds that. We give grants to graduate students and contingent faculty members, adjunct faculty members. My work allows that, those direct grants So I am learning on the fly. It's fundraising primarily from individuals, not foundations. Foundations really don't direct funding to the types of programming we want to fund. So I am asking not particularly wealthy people, because these are academics, to make sort of small-scale contributions in a consistent manner. And I'm really learning how to do that as I go.
2: How do you reach them?
0: A million different ways in person seems to be the best way. We do a lot of emailing. I like to make it as personal as I can. We do some mass campaigning, but I like to write individuals. I like to involve the executive director because people are more inclined to give to the person in charge as opposed to the person soliciting. And we do a lot of outreach events so, we bring people we know are either interested in giving or have given in the past. We bring them into a room, give them something they want, either a lecture. We have a upcoming event that Tony Kushner will be at. He'll talk about his new play. You know you have to pay to get in, but not a lot and then you sort of work the room and hope that you get a larger donation. So we do a lot of a lot of things like that
2: a lot of room for creativity in. Oh, absolutely. Coming up with things.
0: Absolutely. There's a lot of room for creativity. It's actually coming up with program ideas is the best part of my job. I also get to do a lot of writing and, you know, I'll get back to that. But that's basically how I got into this because, you know, I can write a great grant proposal. I can write a great appeal letter. So it's really a writer's job. You know, there's a lot of programmatic work and, you know, I do a lot of on the tech side, I do web pages and kind of a jack-of-all-trades. But fundamentally, it is a writing job, writing and organizational, you know, organizing
1: events, getting people together. So let's go back and yep. take your story from your college days, where you went to college, what you studied, what did you plan to pursue? Okay. Well, I went to a small school, liberal arts college in the mid
0: Midwest called Ohio Wesleyan in Ohio. And initially, I thought I would major in a joint major in Spanish and journalism. I knew I wanted to write. And after a year of very intense, hard, beyond my reach Spanish classes, I I was not ready to be a Spanish major. I decided to to move that piece away. Why Spanish? Well, you know, I took Spanish throughout high school And then in my junior year, going into senior year that summer, I spent a month in Madrid taking college-level classes. They weren't really, but it was a tremendous experience. And I really did learn how to speak in that month. I had a passion for Spanish. You know, it was something I thought at 17 that I wanted to pursue. And I still have a passion for the language, but it just wasn't for me in an academic way. You know, I had to read Don Quixote in Spanish my freshman year, and I thought, this is just, this is beyond me. This is beyond me. And journalism, I just didn't like the program. As my one great journalism teacher said to me, he said, you know, you're, you're a very good writer. You're a great critical reader. I really think you would do better in the humanities. And I thought, uh, okay, I'll take some English classes and some comp lit classes and it was immediate. You know, I knew after two English classes, this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to read and write about literature. So in the beginning of my sophomore year, I declared my my major. And once
1: you graduated, what did that lead to?
0: Well, in my senior year of college, I had the wonderful opportunity there was a an internship program through the Great Lakes College Association it has a different name now to intern in Manhattan with some sort of publishing entity and I got an interview with the Paris Review this literary magazine that was founded by George Plimpton and I never thought I would get it in fact during the interview they said to me we've only ever hired interns from Ivy Leagues and I responded That seems so limited. (laughs) Why would you only limit yourselves to Ivy League students? I think that actually got me the job. So it was a semester, it was for college credit. I had to write about it when I returned to Ohio Wesleyan. And it was the most useful thing I think I, I did career wise. I had a lot of opportunities once I graduated. I think I applied to 10 jobs and got 10 offers. And I had a job within three weeks of. Graduation. So that internship really changed everything for me. You know, I think as an English major coming from Ohio Wesleyan, a small school that a lot of people haven't heard of, it would have limited me in some way, but you know, I was spoiled for choice.
1: That's amazing. Yeah. So give us the story of how your career progressed from there.
0: So after graduating from college, again, I applied to mostly. Editorial assistant jobs with major publishing houses like Random House and Knopf, uh, you know, dozens of them. And I had an opportunity to, it was kind of word of mouth, to apply to a job that was not editorial, which was not what I wanted at the New York Review of Books. And it was in the promotion department. And I interviewed with my future boss, who I adored. And she basically offered me the job in the interview. She said, you know, I think you're perfect. And I love that, you know, the Paris Review, I really did everything at the Paris Review internship. And I did a lot of marketing. They let me write marketing copy. They put me in charge of marketing campaigns. And I thought, you know, I really thought I wanted to go into editorial, but this job sounds fun. And it's the New York Review Books. How do you turn them down? It was also the most money. And we're talking about publishing salaries in the, you know, mid to late 80s. Oh, peanuts really appalling. So the, I had student loans and I thought, I like this, this woman. I, the job sounds interesting and it pays $5,000 more than every other job I've been offered. So it was an easy choice. So I worked at the New York Review for five years. And after the first year and a half, my boss told me that she was leaving to pursue a degree in psychology at NYU. And would I like her job? And I thought, well, they're never going to give it to me. I'm 22 and a half, you know. So we worked out a situation where she would come in. It was like a day and a half a week and kind of mentored me through six months. And I ended up with her job at the end of my second year. So I ran the department for three years and it was a great job. I learned a lot. Tell us about what a difference it
1: made for your career.
0: It made a huge difference. She was so patient. She had been there for, I want to say, 15 years. It was her first job right out of college. So she knew exactly where I was. She had been an English major. We had a, a lot in common. We were close. You know, we talked about everything. So her patience with me kind of overwhelmed me because I don't know how quick a study I was. I was in charge of marketing for a major New York publication. And she really took me through everything step by step. She made a calendar for me of, you know, everything that would come up every year that had to be done, space for new projects and what those projects might look like. She was extraordinary. We're still in touch. She's a psychologist now. She lives in Connecticut. I adore her. You know, working at the New York Review, something you had to do to keep your job was read the magazine. So I used to, you know, get my lunch and sit at my desk and read the New York Review every day because the articles are extremely long and complex. So it really took me sort of a week of lunches to get through it. And I found myself sort of Less interested, I mean, I was still reading constantly, reading novels, reading poetry, less interested in literature and getting more interested in human rights. And the publisher of the New York Review, or the former publisher, who was also a mentor to me, I said, he was the, at the time, he was the chair of the board at Amnesty International. And I said, you know, I'd really love to move into human rights work. Do you know of anything? And he was like, well, nothing in New York. There's a great job, and in in fact, I'm in charge of hiring at a magazine in London, but it's a human rights magazine. It's actually a literary human rights magazine, which is a perfect fit for you. Would you be interested in moving to London? I was like, yes, how soon can I go? So it was a long process. Getting a work permit took about, I want to say it took six months. So I didn't resign until I had the work permit in hand from the New York Review of Books. I did give them about a month's notice. And I moved to London for a job at a publication called Index on Censorship, which is still publishing. And that was a real turning point for me because I was in charge of the department as I had been at the New York Review. But it was such a small organization that when you were in charge of a department, you you wore so many hats. So it was at Index that I started fundraising a bit. I started Writing a lot. I wrote grant proposals. I wrote grant reports. I worked very closely with the Ford Foundation, who funded my job and wrote a lot for them to make them happy about funding my job. I was in a new country, and that was certainly that was part of the excitement of the job and index. But it was really the job itself. So INDEX was started in the 70s by the poet Stephen Spender, who had a friend, Pavel Litvinov, in Russia, who was incarcerated for writing something. So INDEX was founded. And when I was there, it was 1990. The world was kind of imploding. You know, it was the time of the Velvet Revolution and the Czech Republic. While I was there, the wall came down. So a lot was happening. And I met so many writers who had been incarcerated in Africa, Southeast Asia, and also the former Soviet bloc countries. It was just a fascinating time to be at INDEX and really personally enriching. I loved every moment of it. And the staff was wonderful, incredibly smart, devoted, diverse people from all over the world the Middle East, Africa, Southeast Asia, Australia, everywhere. So what led to you
1: heading back to the States? The climate.
0: Oh, really? Yeah, it really was the climate. You know, Ford funded my job for three years, and I think they would have renewed it. In fact, the program officer said, you know, if you want to stay, we'll give you more money. And I said, you know, after the second summer of constant rain, wearing wool all summer, I think I actually had sad, what is sunlight, mm-hmm. like the, deprivation disorder? Mm-hmm. Um, I was a mess. I just missed sun. I missed the sun. It was a miserable three years in that respect. I also miss my family and my friends. I mean, I made new friends in London and some of them very dear. I met my husband, Simon. But it it didn't feel like home. I thought maybe it could become home. But between the climate and, you know, really missing my immediate family, my parents and my brothers, I wanted to come home. So I lasted three years. Wonderful, wonderful three
1: years besides the weather. So what happened next?
0: Well, next was very interesting. You know, I came home without a job, which I would never recommend, you know, when you're barely 30 going anytime without a job. But literally, as soon as I landed, there was sort of a a major staff change at Index. They hired a new editor. And she contacted me and said, you know, we're relaunching the magazine in a new format. And we're going to do several events in the United States. We need to do direct mail in the United States. We have some fundraising I want to do in the United States. You know, can you be our point person? You know, it's probably a year-long contract. That's it. But would you be interested? And it was was a lifesaver because I didn't have to look for a new job. It was perfect. So I came home, got married, and did that for a year. And it was wonderful. I worked out of the offices of Human Rights Watch, met a lot of friends there. They were very generous and very supportive. We did wonderful events in Washington, D.C., New York City, we did direct mail. I did quite a bit of fundraising and kept that connection with Index. And at the end of the year, they asked me to be on their American committee, which was sort of in charge of, you know, overseeing development initiatives in the, uh, in the U.S. and also marketing. So it was perfect, perfect transition.
1: And at what point did you start your consulting firm?
0: Consulting firm came quite a bit later. After Index, I went to a sort of a feminist research organization where I was both the managing editor. I did oversaw the production of their publications and did some fundraising, mostly marketing, and did that for about two years And then I got a great job at the Council of Literary Magazines and Presses, where I was a program director. It was freelance, you know, part-time, sort of 30 hours a week, funded by the National Endowment for the Arts, also a three-year position. That was on par for index for me in terms of just loving the work. I got to travel all over the country meeting editors writers the job was primarily to help literary magazines with basically operational issues and marketing and fundraising so i led training seminars developed course materials for other people to train i hired consultants to work with literary magazines all over the country it was a fabulous fabulous position While I was there, the executive director abruptly resigned, and I was asked to be executive director. It was at the time that I was trying to get pregnant to have Stacia. Um, So I said, yes, but only until you can find somebody permanent. And I did that for about seven months. And when that concluded, I got pregnant and stopped working for four months. And my plan was to stop working for a few years but I was up here and I got a call from the Hastings Center and they said, you know, somebody at, at uh, the Council of Literary Magazines and Presses gave us your name and said, you know all about marketing and membership and we need somebody right away to help us. And I thought, this is really hard to turn down. It was part time, 20 hours a week. So I did that for five years while Stacia was tiny and an infant. But again, it was only twenty hours a week, so it was manageable. You know, I had her with a sitter uh, those twenty hours a week, and I could drive home from the Hastings Center to you know feed her, see her for lunch. So it was really fortuitous for me to have that arrangement at a time when my daughter was so young.
2: A common element in a lot of your positions seems to be that they were meaningful and helpful to other people. Absolutely, Either people that that were in distress people who had been imprisoned for their beliefs or what they wrote. Was that a big driver for you, having that kind of meaning in what you did?
0: Absolutely. It's always been a big driver for me. You know, I've had a few brief positions that I haven't even mentioned here. And if there was a disconnect with the mission, I was not happy. Even the Hastings Center, when I took it, I thought, bioethics, what do I know about bioethics? Nothing, you know. But the longer I was there, the more fascinating their work became. And they're doing really, really important work at the Hastings Center. You know, end-of-life decisions, end-of-life care, the future of genetic engineering. I mean, really terrifying questions and also really important questions. They do a lot of work on palliative care. And these are all things, especially as we're getting older, that are, you know, so important to our quality of life, what it means to be in ethical society, how we treat the elderly. Yeah. So I found the, the more time I spent there, the more compelling their work became to me. And I have to say across the board, certainly with every job I've mentioned, even the New York Review to a certain extent, but less so. The mission of the organization was central to my happiness. You know, if I was behind the mission, I was happy.
2: So would that be a recommendation that you would make to young folks looking for careers, find meaning?
0: Absolutely. I really do. And I really do think that there's kind of a direct line between humanities education and working in fields where ethics and compassion and humility and empathy are important. Because I really do think the humanities teaches us those things. You know, if you can learn how to be a close reader and a critical thinker, you almost can't help but embrace those things. And the humanities are getting such a bad rap these days. I just read an article in the Wall Street Journal about how humanities departments, they're all so PC and humanities education is ultimately a waste of time. And, you know, everything is anybody who's anyone should go into some STEM-related field, you know, medicine and maybe the law. But, you know, why would you get a degree in philosophy? This angers me to, to an extent that I really can't even articulate because I think that there's always value in a humanities education. And I think they teach critical life skills and also thinking skills in ways that other disciplines do not.
2: It's perhaps because its focus is not on making money, which seems to be what drives so much today.
0: Absolutely. I belong to a Facebook group called Paying for College 101. And you should see the posts about why you should never let your kid major in English. And it's all about money. And that is not what higher education is about. It's about developing who you are, what your passion is. The last thing I hope college students are thinking about is will they make $100,000 when they get out of school? It's your one chance, really, to follow that bliss wherever it takes you in an academic setting. Unless you have somebody funding you along the way, you get four years, maybe six years to do that unless you go on to get a PhD. Make it count. Make it meaningful. Don't worry about the money. You'll f- you'll figure it out. And frankly, there are millions of English majors at Amazon. There's a book. I don't know his name. He's uh, He's not the CEO, he's the like CFO of Microsoft, and it's about artificial intelligence. And basically there's a chapter that talks about how all the tech people are there, and we're just producing tech people at such a rate, but what artificial intelligence really needs are people from the humanities who have this empathy, who have these critical thinking skills, who can read closely and understand content and know when to question What they read. These are the skills that artificial intelligence needs more than anything, because there's an oversupply on the technical side. So you can do anything with a humanities degree. You know, you can go to law school. You can even go to medical school. There's no stopping you. So why not when you have the chance? I'm not, you know, I'm not saying if you want to get a a BA in engineering not to do that, but I am trying to push the idea of humanities education on on kids who might think, well, I won't be able to pay back my student loans. You will. And in fact, if you work at a nonprofit, I think this is still true after graduation. You get some loan, maybe not under DeVos, actually, but there is some student loan forgiveness.
1: For the listeners, I want to bridge where we are in what you've recounted from your past to the present moment. Can you share that with us? I think that my...
0: Professional life has been a little odd and unconventional, little circuitous, but I feel like I've always made, with one or two exceptions, the right decisions. And I've really trusted my instincts. Trusting yourself is so important, I think, as you make decisions about your future. And I think a lot of people don't trust those feelings enough. You know, I started my consulting business when I was at the Hastings Center because I knew that contract would end eventually and I would have to move on. So I started my own consulting business, which, you know, had periods of great success. But I'm not a hustler and I, you really have to get out there and sell yourself. I had amazing clients as a consultant. It was mostly arts nonprofits and a lot of literary magazines. And I loved every minute of it, but the constant hustle was not for me. So, you know, my daughter now is about to go to college. And it was really at the beginning of this past summer that I thought, you know, I miss being in an office. I miss colleagues. I miss learning things. You know, everything I was learning, I was learning from, you know, and passing from a client or self-teaching on a computer. And I wanted to get sort of back in a communal setting where learning was a daily occurrence. So I started applying to jobs and the MLA, they liked me. They said, come in. This isn't an interview. You know, just come in and talk to us. We're thinking about changing our development position right now. It's kind of a junior position. We're thinking about going with someone more senior like you, but we would really value you know, your feelings about how we would go about this. And when I got there, it felt more like an interview than that discussion. You know, I talked them through a lot of different options, and they asked me a lot of questions about my fundraising experience. And two weeks later, they sent me a letter and said, you told us what you would need to make to come back to work full time. We can't do that. But We can do X, Y, and Z, and their benefits are actually very tremendous. And so I took the job. And, you know, they knew that I had never been I am technically a development director. I'm the only person doing development at the MLA. My title doesn't really reflect that, but they knew that I had never had that position per se. And they took a chance on me, which is an amazing thing. And when I got there, I realized there were lots of Susan Kenny's around, you know, people who Maybe had gotten a master's at 50 and were completely changing directions, and the MLA took a chance on them. And, you know, there are 125 employees, and I would say a good, like, one-fifth of the employee base is people who switched it up or took 15 years off to raise kids and came back to the workforce, and I have to hand it to them to be willing to take chances on people, and I'm glad I was one, so...
2: They bring the benefit of additional life experience, though, don't they? Do you find that people who've done that have other facets that they can bring Oh, absolutely.
0: Into absolutely. My department is wonderful. It's all women, five women. You know, my boss is about a decade younger than me. She's brilliant. Everyone I work with has either a master's or a PhD. There's a young woman in my department who's basically in charge of web content. The department is outreach. And she has a Ph.D. in French. And she figured out, I I don't want to be a professor. You know, I want to do something else. So I don't think anyone I know at the MLA went through sort of a a narrow, predictable career path. There are lots of former academics, obviously, given the nature of the work they do. But, you know, there are a few people. The the CFO started in the mailroom 30 years ago. You know, literally as like the mail clerk and he's the head of finances at the company. And I love, I love that there are so many people there who have been there for, you know, 30, 35 years and have just risen up through the ranks and are clearly love what they do and happy there. I think it speaks well to an organization to have that kind of longevity amongst certain staff members. So.
2: It's like you found the perfect place.
0: I think it's a really good fit. You know, technically, I'm a little challenged. I've learned about five different web design programs, and they will admit this themselves. They use as much freeware as they possibly can to save money. Email, direct mail programs. I'm learning a completely new database. So every day I definitely have a point where I think, like, I cannot learn another program. There has to be a saturation point soon. I'm a little overwhelmed. But everyone in my department has been so helpful. You know, it's like, help out the old lady. She doesn't know, you know. (laughs) I mean, no, they don't say that. but And that's been great. I mean, you know, I've learned some HTML, which I never wanted to learn. The confidence comes, I think, after... The, you know, trying and retrying the failures. I wouldn't say I approach everything with a degree of confidence, but after the fact, it's like, oh yeah, I got, I got through that HTML lesson and I actually understood it. You know, I understood why those codes mean what they mean. But you're willing to go through the struggle
1: to find the mastery. Yeah. Yeah.
2: The challenges like that really show you about yourself, things you don't even know about yourself.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And
0: patience, again, is, you know, after being a consultant for 10 years, you don't really, I mean, of course, I was always patient and courteous with my clients. But when you're working alone, it was everything was always remote. I am impatient with myself. I have discovered a new found patience for myself within myself since starting this job in three months. And that's a pretty remarkable thing. Yeah. And it's amazing at, you know, 55, you can turn a corner like that. Because I have never had a lot of patience with myself. Yeah, it's remarkable that we keep learning new things about ourselves. Are there any other ways that you feel your job has changed you? Even though it hasn't been a straight and narrow path, I feel like there's this sort of arc of growth. It is deeply personally fulfilling to work for something that you believe in and would support, would give money to if asked Especially my my time at Index on Censorship um, was profoundly life-altering. There's no question I come from not an extremely privileged background, but a privileged background. I had never met anyone who had spent, you know, 11 years in jail in Malawi until I worked at Index. And it really alters your perception of the way the world works, not always in good ways. I never felt like my job per se helped these people, but the magazine itself did. The magazine was truly life-changing. You know, it published the work of bandwriters. So people were sneaking out things that people had written from prisons and Index was publishing it. And this was soul-inspiring to the people who were imprisoned. So even having the tiniest little part in that It's really life-altering. I mean, that's the best phrase I can come up with. Yeah. I'm proud of my career, you know. It's been an odd one, but I'm proud of it. And I'm happy to still be in it. Is there anything that surprised you in this field? Certainly in the nonprofit world, there's a lot of snobbery, which is kind of shocking.
2: Amongst whom?
0: The people who work in the nonprofit world, not not all of them, certainly not. But, you know, I think because the salaries tend to be on the lower side, you get a number of people who don't really need to earn salaries and they are, you know, usually far more educated than than the majority of staff members. And there is
2: I don't know. What is the snobbery saying? What, are, what is it that the inner dialogue? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's hard to describe snobbery. It is an unspoken, I am better than you. I experienced that at Index. I experienced that certainly at the New York Review of Books. I think I've experienced it in most of my jobs at nonprofits.
2: But isn't that a thing amongst intellectuals? At least that's the stereotype.
0: It is the stereotype. You know what? It it is a thing, but it really shouldn't be. And that has been, I think, probably the most frustrating thing about working fundamentally in the nonprofit world. Just because you're better educated than someone or don't have to work for money, you're lucky. But should that make you treat people differently? No, it shouldn't. And I've come up against that quite a bit. You know, sometimes directly, it's kind of pollutes the organizational atmosphere. It's not a good thing. You know, I have lots of friends who work in the nonprofit world. We've never overlapped working and they basically say the same thing. So
1: I think it's kind of prevalent. So that's been a challenge. Share any other major challenges or obstacles that you've had to overcome. In all of my
0: positions, I think, and especially the more fundraising I did, Diplomacy is fundamentally necessary quality when you're asking people for money. And no matter how diplomatic you are, you will always get pushback. I mean, I don't feel like I can give you a specific example without giving too much away. But people who give you money and certainly people who give you lots of money often expect to be treated certain ways, to get certain privileges, sometimes to influence programming at a nonprofit, and even mission. Like, well, I gave you $500,000, so I would like you to do X. It's like, have you read our mission statement? We don't do X, you know. If you want to do X, maybe you should be giving money to Y. There is quite a bit of that. And even some foundations do that. They try to influence mission. So that can be a little insidious and hard to deal with. And has been a challenge, because how do you, you know, someone who's giving you so much money to do the program that drives your mission, how can you say to them, like, no, we're not doing that without risk losing so much money? And I have certainly come up against that over the years, and it's difficult to navigate. And that's probably the hardest part of fundraising.
1: Finding the language to carefully put them off. Exactly.
0: It's always good to pull in either a a board member. All nonprofits have to have boards. So you know, if you're the one dealing with the funder, have somebody in a higher position of power who is on board with you. And they all are. Uh, They are all on board with you. Or the executive director, you know, go in as a team. And I'm usually pretty good at Bringing those people in when necessary. So again, I, I, you know, it really goes back to diplomacy. It's an essential skill in fundraising. And I have met non-politic and undiplomatic fundraisers. And it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. And they don't usually last in their positions.
2: Are there fundraising techniques? Like, there's probably a range from, like, begging to bullying. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Bullying is never a good idea. Um, You know, fundraising is really – I just had a board meeting where I presented at the board meeting, and fundraising is really about relationship building. Yes, there is a transactional nature to it, but if I – I'm in constant communication with you about what we're doing and how I'm putting your money to work. I am meeting you in person and talking to you and updating you on how we're putting your money to work. You are much more likely to give me money in the future than, you know, I ask you for money once a year, say an annual appeal and then walk away from you and I'm quiet. You know, I work in the outreach department and I think that's somehow appropriate because fundraising is really a form of outreach, building relationships that you want to last over time. You know, the person who's giving you money, a good idea of how what they're doing for your organization is valuable.
2: Giving them a share of the satisfaction.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Of the
2: mission being accomplished. Yep.
0: Yep. I've talked to individual donors about what they love most, in terms of what is most satisfying about giving $500 a year. And they say, getting to meet staff. They love meeting staff and talking to, you know, program officers. And if we have a journal, the journal editor, they adore it. It gives structure to that $500 check that they might not appreciate otherwise.
1: And connection, I would imagine. Yes, absolutely. Human connection. Again, it's all about
0: relationship building.
1: What about misconceptions?
0: I think fundraisers, because that's what I'm doing now, and even marketing people going back to sort of past positions tend to get a bad rap. You know, we're looked at, it's like the lowly thing that has to be done to perpetuate mission. If you're at a nonprofit, fundraising is mission. Because by your very nature, to fulfill mission, you need money. So when it's separated out and compartmentalized And also frowned upon. I've seen that a lot of nonprofits. It's like the poor fundraiser, the most loathed person in the organization. It's really dangerous. So getting past that. And also, I think fundraisers really need to. It's a great thing to say in an interview. Fundraising is mission. I think it helped me get the MLA job. Because it is. And we're all part of the thing that we are setting out to do. We're just doing different pieces of it. So why fundraising is so maligned, I don't know.
1: Is there any aspect of it that you would change if you could? The only
0: thing I would change in my professional history, when I was at the New York Review of Books, I applied for a master's degree, an MFA at NYU. I got in, I got funding, not enough. And I said, I have to work to be able to do this master's and they said there's no way you have to come full time and I, I it was impossible i that's my one regret that i didn't get that masters i would have loved it the other thing is i think that the person in charge of fundraising and the board of directors cuz the board of directors is so critical to fundraising they need to spend more time together i think like board retreats are a good idea where they spend a day together talking about how the board can facilitate fundraising. I mean, for me, the big frustration. You know, their board is academics. Um, you know, they don't make a lot of money. They're very resistant to fundraising, and that makes my job twice as hard. And I've seen it before at other organizations. There is a resistance. Nobody likes to ask for money. Who does? I don't even like it, But I'm a fundraiser. It's not an easy thing to do, but if you can piece it out and say, you know, again, fundraising is part of mission, it does make it easier. We can't do this work without fundraising. And at the MLA, we can't fund the programs that our members adore. These are programs that the Ford Foundation or the Mellon Foundation will not fund. It's called regranting. They don't do that. We fund flying people to conventions, to interviews. We fund course development programs. This is important stuff. Just getting boards to the place where they understand that this stuff has to happen and their involvement makes my job so much easier and not to sort of compartmentalize what I do as like, oh, we have staff that does that. It's not the way it works. It's been a big frustration for me. Even in the marketing world, too, that's been a big frustration. Sort of board, like, all we care about is we care about governance, we care about uh, mission, and we care about programs. And they don't like getting involved in the more essential components of making their organization operate. And they really have to be to be successful. So, yeah, I would change that. I would change how boards operate and how boards think about fundraising and marketing. Interesting.
1: Yeah. Bringing more acceptance as opposed to the resistance that absolutely. you're encountering, it yes, sounds like. Yes, absolutely. What advice would you give someone who's considering a similar career? You know, I didn't know at 21 when I graduated
0: from college that I wanted to work for mission-centric organizations, not the nonprofit world. I had no idea. But I did know what interested me, and I did know what sort of motivated me to change Follow those instincts, and if you are interested in working for nonprofits, in whatever capacity, programmatic, a lot of nonprofits do publications, editorial, nonprofits do research, you can be a researcher, or more sort of facility roles like mine, uh, fundraising, marketing, finance, make sure you value the mission, and it's something that you yourself support, that it's something you can talk about passionately always that's fundamental i think to nonprofit work and you know within the nonprofit world it's easy to move around and i think this is possibly different than the corporate world i mean i have been a marketing director a circulation director i have been a managing editor i have been a copy editor I feel like I've done virtually all of it and now a fundraiser. If you can demonstrate your value, you know, make meaningful contributions, there's room to move around and there's certainly an immense room to grow. It's a good career choice, you know, if, especially if you like variety.
1: Is there anything that we haven't covered here that you think is important for young students to know who are considering studying humanities in college.
2: Or someone who's in corporate right now looking for more meaning in their jobs as a career change to go into nonprofit.
0: We actually, our new head of IT came from a corporate background and he's thrilled. He was not a humanities major, but I think he wanted to be. And he loves the culture. After 10 years in, you know, as he says, awful corporate culture, you know, I was an English major and there are so many choices. Even with that first, those first 10 job offers, I could have gone off in so many different directions. I could have been an editor at a publishing house. I could have been, you know, it, there are so many choices. So as you're deciding what to do in college, I think it's too young to decide what you want to do when you get out. So enjoy that extremely unique experience of just being immersed in learning. Forget about what kind of job you'll have, how much money you'll make, and do do what you want to do in college. And the rest literally falls into place. As you mature, as opportunities present themselves... But I am really passionate about, especially, as I said earlier, defending the humanities major, especially with all the negative press of late, and that you really can do anything with the humanities major. And it really does support human growth, compassion, empathy, all the good things that seem to be somehow so missing recently.
1: These are valuable qualities. Wonderful. Well said. Thank you. I can't think of a better place to end this. Great. Thank Thank you you so much. Thank
2: you. Thanks, Susan.
1: Thanks for listening. To hear more and subscribe, visit our website, professionalconfessionals.com. You can find Professional Confessionals on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.